This is the Dialogue Journal podcast series. Hello, and welcome to another podcast of Dialogue, the Journal of Mormon Thought. I'm your host, Morris Thurston, chair-elect of the Board of Directors of Dialogue Foundation. I'm pleased to have with me today John G. Turner, author of an exciting new biography, Brigham Young, Pioneer Prophet, published by Harvard University Press. Welcome to the podcast, John. Thanks, Morris. It's great to be sitting down with you. Well, it's good to have you here. Most of our listeners will have heard about John's book. It is the first major biography of Brigham Young since Leonard Arrington published American Moses in 1985, and it has received strong praise from some impressive people. Phil Barlow, a fine scholar and head of the Utah State Mormon Studies Program, says, Turner's treatment of the complex Brigham Young is unsentimental, cogent, critical, and fair. Phil, incidentally, is also a member of the Dialogue Board. Daniel Walker Howe, a Pulitzer Prize-winning historian, writes this, In this superb new biography, Turner's strong narrative, human insight, knowledge of context, meticulous use of sources, and sophisticated appreciation of Mormon theology combine to create an account of his larger-than-life subject that is at once informative, judicious, and profoundly engaging. That's pretty great stuff, John. Thanks. Let me say, just to begin with, that John deserves the Iron Man Award for his schedule this weekend. He flew in from his home in Virginia to California on Thursday to speak to the Claremont Mormon Studies Program, and then spoke at our home on Friday to the Orange County Miller-Eccles Study Group, Flew back to Utah Saturday morning for a speaking engagement at a book fair there. Flew back in the afternoon to speak at the Miller-Eccles Los Angeles County Group on Saturday night. He's here in my office at 7.30 Sunday morning to do this podcast, after which we're planning to attend the Anaheim Six Ward Sacrament meeting, and then he catches a plane back to Virginia. Kind of makes me tired just to think about it, John. Well, it's a really, it's, it's a rare opportunity for an author in academia to have people interested in his book. So it's no hardship at all. It's, it's, a, it's a real thrill and very gratifying. Well, we really appreciate it. We'll get to Brigham Young in a moment, but first I'd like to learn a little bit of background about you, John. Uh, where did you grow up? I grew up outside of Rochester, New York. Lived there until I went to college, which was at Middlebury College up in Vermont. So you really grew up in Mormon country, not that far from Palmyra, not far from where Brigham Young grew up. And Vermont, uh, we know Joseph was born in Vermont. But I didn't know, I didn't know this at the time. I was, so you, you didn't as a kid. You never ran across Mormons, right? I, 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 not that I, that I knew about. I, I don't remember any of my high school classmates being LDS, for instance. And I suppose if there were, I might not have known what that meant. You know, at some point... Maybe, maybe in high school or college, I, I became aware of, of Mormonism as local history. But it wasn't really until I was studying American religious history at Notre Dame that I, I realized that Mormonism had begun in just a short ways from where I grew up. So how did you actually become involved or aware of Mormon studies or Mormonism? 
Well, it's really through studying the history of religion in the United States, even though I was focused on doing research about American evangelicalism in graduate school. I read some books on Mormonism, and I think it's hard not to be drawn to the story of the Latter-day Saints if one is interested in American religious history. It's such a colorful and dramatic story. And one immediately notices the contrast between Mormon history in the 19th century and Latter-day Saints today, or the church today. And, and, and so that, that was fascinating. And so when, when I was in grad school, you know, I, I learned at least a little bit about uh, the Mormon past. And then a few years ago, when I had finished the project I was doing on evangelicalism, I wanted to go in a new direction and expand my knowledge and get a little bit out of my comfort zone. And so I decided to learn something about Mormonism and ultimately learned about Mormonism through writing a biography of, of Brigham Young, which is probably an unusual way to go about it. <laughs> there are a lot a lot of other ways and a lot that are more common than, uh, than writing a biography of perhaps Mormonism's most famous uh, subject. Let, let's talk a little bit about graduate school because I don't think we even discussed where you graduated from. Where, where did you get your PhD? Uh, I got my PhD from Notre Dame, which is a, a great place to, to study the history of American religion, whether you're interested in Catholicism, Evangelicalism, or, or Mormonism. There were a couple of LDS students among my classmates, and that's, that's one of the things that, that kindled my interest. Uh, people like Patrick Mason and Matt Grow and Mike DiGruzio, who I imagine are, are known to, to a lot of your readers and, and listeners. Yes, they have all gone on to write very good things. And uh, so it's interesting that there's kind of this Mormon group at Notre Dame of all places, and you as an evangelical, not a, you're a, a background in evangelicalism, and not a Catholic, kind of get together and learn about Mormonism. Talk a little bit about the background. Now, we've mentioned that that's your background, but is that more of a family background, or were you active yourself in in an evangelical movement? Yeah. Well, I I kind of describe myself as having one foot in mainline Protestantism and one foot in evangelicalism, if that makes any sense. I grew up in a Presbyterian church. Mm -hmm. My mom is very active in the church and I, w- I would consider her an, an evangelical in the sense of very focused on that personal relationship with Jesus that is so characteristic of, of evangelicalism. And I grew up spiritually through organizations like Young Life and InterVarsity, Young Life being an evangelical high school ministry, InterVarsity being an evangelical college ministry. And so that, yeah, that was very much my background. Uh, you know, I feel a little bit uncomfortable with the label evangelical today, partly because it's taken on a lot of the baggage that fundamentalists used to have. Mm-hmm. So, but, you know, I, I guess I'm, I'm still happy to claim it as reflective of, of my belief in, in Jesus as my Savior. Okay. And then just a little bit more about your personal life. You're married, right? Yes, married and have one daughter. And you live where now? We live in the town of Burke in Fairfax County, Northern Virginia. And the reason for that is your current job is? Uh, I teach 
religious studies at George Mason University. Now, you were telling me that one of your first real experiences with Mormonism was the uh, the pageant in Palmyra, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How, how did you come to go to that? It was probably from, you know, this was, I got married in 2002, and I had in the late 90s at least read some works of Mormon history while at Notre Dame. And so I must, and at some point, you know, I, I became aware that the Hillcomore pageant, you know, every July in Palmyra is something interesting about Mormonism near my hometown. And my wife and I had just gotten married and gone on our honeymoon, and we spent a few weeks living in my parents' house, staying there while they were out of the country. And so we went down and, and saw the pageant one night, which was which was interesting. You know, first of all, it was strange to have these anti-Mormon protesters, really, that <laughs> confront you on your way in. I thought, my goodness, these people really ought to have something better to do. I don't know, what it, what it was, Saturday night or something. Yeah. Surely they could find some other way to entertain themselves than by warning Mormons and others uh, against Mormonism. So that was strange. In terms of the actual storyline of the pageant, I was probably probably mostly sailed over my head. And I know more recently they've redone the the welcome center at the pageant. So I think one would probably get a little bit bit better of an introduction going there. Now I went I went back down this past summer before the actual pageant and and got a bit of a behind the scenes tour, which was was really fun. Good. Tell us a little bit more about how you came to settle on Brigham Young as a subject as opposed to something else in Mormonism. Sure. Well, I, I'd initially been thinking of doing something else. I was, you know, my previous research had been in uh, post-1945 U.S. history. I, I studied evangelicals in the United States after World War II, their culture, their involvement with, with politics. And I thought, well, maybe I could do something on the Latter-day Saints along similar lines. You know, Mormons and politics, or Mormons and conservative politics in America since 1945. Still think it it wouldn't have been a bad idea, given uh, the recent trajectory of events since then. But the more I read about Mormon history, the more I was just drawn back into the 19th century. I mean, frankly, everybody complains that there aren't more great works of Mormon history on the 20th on the 20th century, but it's it's hard not to just be fascinated by by the 19th century story of Mormonism. It's so dramatic, so colorful, so full of tumult. So I decided I would just switch centuries and move move a bit back in time. And it didn't take me long to to settle on Brigham Young as the subject of my study. I didn't especially want to write about Joseph Smith. Uh, for one thing, Richard Bushman had just published his Rough Stone Rolling. And also, if you know, if you write about Joseph Smith, you're immediately caught up in debates about the truth of his claims. And it's not so much that I wouldn't enjoy sitting around and, and talking about that, but whatever position one takes on those it inevitably alienates a big chunk of readers and kind of sidetracks any any other investigation of, of history. Brigham Young, by contrast, 
seem easier to, to deal with that way. I mean, he was simply a very sincere follower of Joseph Smith. And I read several of the existing biographies of Brigham Young. Rather foolishly, I thought there was room for something new and, you know, possibly something better. And so so I just plunged in and I didn't really, I really didn't fully know what I was getting into in terms of the volume of sources and the complexity of the man. But I just plunged in and I'm really glad that, that I did. It was not the sort of project that one gets bored of after a few years. I, you know, it really sustained my, my interest and fascination as I was doing the research and writing. How long did it take you from the time you decided on this as a project and when you handed the finished manuscript in? Yeah, about five years. And how did you work during that time? I mean, obviously you were doing other jobs that you were getting money for, so you must have had this put this into a lot of nooks and crannies, right? Well, I had, a, I had a pretty good teaching load. I was at the University of South Alabama, so I would teach either two or three courses a semester and found that you know I had enough time to, to work on, on the book. Definitely, it was, it was kind of a frenetic pace. It was, it was a lot of work. I tried to just go at the project chronologically. So back in 2007, I went out to Utah for the first time, had a month, basically did the research for the first chapter of the book, Brigham Young's Early Years, and then wrote that chapter after I got back home. And then from there, tried to work on about a chapter a semester, which wasn't always quite possible to, to keep up. And so I would research and write as I went along, and then you know, went back and tried to impose some coherence and co- cohesion on the whole thing. How did you find your spending time in Utah? You actually spent summers there, right? Yeah, after that first trip, we then went back for three full summers, which was, was fabulous. And you have to keep in mind, we were living in Mobile, Alabama at the time. <laughs> so at roughly at mid-May when the semester ended, life in Mobile was getting pretty much insufferable. So Utah was very literally a, a breath of fresh air when we would, would get out there. We had a great time. How did you find the cooperation of the church history people with you, being a, not a Mormon, uh, and knowing that you were working on this book? Uh, how did that go? It ended up going incredibly well, and I think it was partly showing up at a good time. I think partly folks there sensing that I was not coming at the project with any particular axe to grind. I think that, that was helpful. And it does occur to me that when I first showed up, no background in Mormonism or Mormon history and announced that I wanted to write a biography of Brigham Young, I'm I'm sure I must have come off as just entirely (laughs) foolish and foolhardy, but they were nice enough not to tell me that. And so they were very encouraging. And ultimately, first of all, they gave me access to the entirety of the Brigham Young papers. And I was going to do the project regardless of the level of access I got. But that enabled a much better biography and a much richer and more detailed portrait of Brigham Young and his relationships with his wives and other other church members. So that was invaluable. And many other very important collections were uh, made accessible to me. The, The two big collections of Edith Romney typescripts were very important, as well as as well as quite a few other things. There were a few 
requests that weren't granted. I, I really wanted to read the George Q. Cannon journal, and so I, along with several hundred other people, I think, asked for access to, <laughs> to them over the, the past few years. But really, I, I, was, I was allowed to see almost everything that I wanted to see, and without any you know, restrictions or particular requirements or anything. So they were, they were very helpful and, and very good to work with. Did you get any sense as to why the, the Canon journals were restricted? I was given a legal explanation that the church is not going to make them accessible until it has published them, and that that was the arrangement that it had with the Cannon family at one point. Okay. Yeah, copyright issues, I suppose. Well, and you know, the, the reality is when you are told that you can't see something, you imme- immediately presume that, <laughs> number one, there's incredibly valuable and, and sensitive information in, in it, and I, I don't really, I don't know for sure that that's the case, uh, but I think many people in the field of Mormon history are really looking forward to it. And I've, I've been interested because he was pretty close to Brigham Young during Young's later years. Mm-hmm. You know, when you spoke to our group at Miller Eccles, I thought you gave a very interesting introduction to your topic. And why don't you just, if you can remember what you said, give that to us here, and that will kind of get us into Brigham Young the man. I think what I was trying to get at is that for, you know, Latter-day Saints are are used to Brigham Young, and it sometimes might be easy to forget just how much of a larger-than-life figure he is. He's a man who spoke in tongues 70 years before the American Pentecostal movement, who presided over the colonization of a thousand-mile stretch of the American West, whose actions and rhetoric prompted an American president to send one-fifth of the U.S. Army to Utah, and who married 55 wives along the way. And I think what I I had said when I was here on Friday night is that if this were fiction, it would be utterly preposterous. It would require a strong suspension of disbelief to think that this could actually have happened. We'd like to talk a little bit about the larger-than-life personality of Brigham, and I'm hoping that as we go in this podcast that our listeners will get a sense for, as much as we can reconstruct something in history, what that personality was like. But a good place to start, I think, is in his early years. There wasn't that much in his formative years to suggest that he might become a major religious leader, was there? There was nothing that would have suggested that. He was entirely on the margins in every respect. Economically, just like his father, and just like Joseph Smith's family, never got ahead. Always moving around from place to place, working different jobs, sometimes getting a piece of land, not being able to keep up the payments uh, on it. And so Brigham Young was evidently an excellent craftsman, but that was not going to put him on the path to riches. He would have been lucky if at some point he was doing well enough to have stability and, and own a piece of land uh, for himself. And then in terms of religion, he was very much adrift. He joined a fringe Methodist church back in the early 1820s, when he was in his early 20s. But that evangelical conversion ended up not satisfying him. 
For whatever reason, he was not assured of his own salvation, and he ended up very despondent uh, spiritually, maybe even a bit bit depressed and, and just glum. And so he was he was adrift when he converts to Mormonism in eighteen thirty two. It really is moving his life in obviously a very different direction, but from there on out. His life is is entirely different. He has a purpose and direction uh, from which he never wavers. So it is just an entire and sharp rupture uh, with his earlier life. And of course, 1832 is early in Mormon history, but he's not, by any stretch of the imagination, one of the earliest Mormon converts. The church had been organized for a couple of years, and Mm -hmm. quite a few others had previously joined the church, right? That's, That's correct. And he had through one of his brothers encountered the Book of Mormon two years earlier in 1830. And for the entire young family, it was really a two-year process of thinking about the books, the, the new book's claims and the claims of this new church. And it took, it took a while for, for Brigham uh, to be convinced. There were some people who got the Book of Mormon, thinking of somebody like Parley Pratt, who I think got it read it late into the night, believed, was baptized. Very quick process. But for Brigham Young and, and his family, it was a much slower process. And he, he, he was like that, uh, especially early in his life. He was very deliberate. He was very independent. He didn't like to be pressured into anything. And I think what finally convinced him that he had to accept the claims of this new church was seeing a group of traveling Mormon elders speak in tongues. And for him, that was a very clear demonstration of God's power and presence. And his earlier Methodist experience had also been restorationist in the sense of looking back to the New Testament church, early New Testament church, as an example and as a model for Christians today. So for example, the Reformed Methodists wanted to revive the spiritual gift of healing and they were also a bit communitarian, like the, the earliest Christians. And so he, he was attuned to that concept of, of restoring an ancient church. And I think for him, seeing these people speak in tongues, as early Christians had done, I think that was extremely powerful. Of course, we don't speak in tongues in the church today, and we don't often think of Brigham Young as the sort of guy that would speak in tongues. But uh, as I understand it, that actually was an important part of his early church life, right? It was very, very important. And yes, it's, it's quite different from the spirituality of, of today's Latter-day Saints. And we have record of Brigham himself speaking in tongues. Uh, lots, of, lots of records. Uh, I, just a short time after his conversion and baptism, he and I, I think along with Heber Kimball, uh, speak in tongues, and they describe it like an electric shock coursing through their bodies. And Brigham speaks in tongues with some frequency. He does so in front of Joseph Smith when he first visits Kirtland and meets Joseph Smith later that year. He sings and speaks in tongues at the dedication of the Kirtland Temple. Singing in tongues was, was also fairly common for Latter-day Saints uh, at this time. I think that's just remarkable. I'd, I'd never heard of any uh, American religious group doing, doing that. 
Yeah, and and the thought of Brigham Young singing, I, that's not an image that most of us have in our minds, and yet, as you point out, he often would lead the singing, right? He, he liked to sing. He led singing, I know, during the 1834 Zion's Camp March, even sometimes after the Saints reached Utah in the minutes of a Sunday meeting. And this pretty much just during his early years in Utah. It would would say that Brigham Young led the congregation in singing a particular hymn. So all you ward choir members, uh, use that as part of your motivation. Be like Brigham Young, join the choir, or maybe lead the choir. Now, before we go too far, I, I do want to back up just a little bit and so we get a fuller appreciation of Brigham's childhood. He came from quite a large family, didn't he? He did come from a large family. I think he had four brothers and several sisters, one of whom died uh, as a child. So yes, he came, came from a large family. His mother died when he was around 14. And shortly after that, his father kind of sets, turns him out on his own. His father remarries, and when Brigham's 16, he leaves home. And, you know, he, he would later sometimes say that his only school was, was hard work and, and deprivation. Those, those were the experiences that shaped him rather than any formal education. And on the subject of education, no formal education, as you point out. And I thought it was interesting in your book, when you quote Brigham Young, you tend to quote him with the original spelling intact if he were writing it. Right. And, I, and I enjoyed that because uh, the spelling, it's very much like if anybody has uh, small children or grandchildren sort of a very phonetic spelling, and we, we chuckle at that, and yet he, he didn't know much better. No, and it, it wasn't as uncommon in general for spelling to be irregular back in the early to mid-19th century, and then especially for Brigham without any education. He tried to just spell things phonetically, and, you know, it, wasn't, it wouldn't be unusual on the same page for him to spell the same word different different ways. And, yes, I just left all of that intact. I thought it was best to represent his writing as he had, had written it. Mm-hmm. So he's, he's 16, basically, when he leaves home. And then how old is he when he joins the church? He is 31 years old. So we, we've church. got 15 years that he's out in the world. We probably don't know a lot of detail about that time, right? Not a great amount of detail. He, you know, he has this Methodist conversion a number of years after leaving home. We can kind of trace his movements around western New York often moved every year somewhere else to but a different kind of work. Apparently, even though his mother died when he was 14, the family must have remained in good touch with each other because eventually didn't most of his family, if not all, end up joining the church? Yes. You know, I think there's some alienation because of his father's remarriage. He never seems to have been especially close to his father. And, and they're not all living in the same place. They all mostly move in the direction of, of Rochester, New York. But I actually think the, the family's conversion brings them closer together than they had been because most of them relocate to Kirtland. And so in a way, I think it helps heal some of the rupture uh, within the family caused by the remarriage of Brigham's father. Mm-hmm. The other thing I found interesting was that Brigham was a very close friend from a 
fairly early age with uh, Heber C. Kimball, right? Correct. When Brigham's father and I think one of his brothers moves to Menden, New York, just outside of Rochester, just south of Rochester, Brigham goes there on a visit, I think in 1827, and he meets Heber Kimball. And yes, they become very good friends. And when Brigham joins the church, is he married? He's married to a woman named Miriam Works. She is dying from consumption at the time. She's also baptized, and she dies several months later. And in many ways, he was repeating his father's life. His mother had died of consumption, and so now Brigham's wife dies of consumption. He has two young daughters, and he's, he's on his own with them. Uh, Heber Kimball's wife does a lot of child care uh, of Brigham's children so that he can go off on preaching missions uh, almost immediately after his conversion. How did he end up meeting Joseph Smith? Describe that as, as best you can. Well, he goes to Kirtland about six months after his conversion and a little while after his wife's death. And he finds Joseph chopping wood in the forest. And he has a traveling companion, right? He goes with his brother, with his brother Joseph Young, and with Heber Kimball. They, they go together. And Brigham is very taken with Joseph. I think he likes the fact, and they, all three of them like the fact, that he doesn't seem to be somebody who puts on airs, that he's a lot like them, comes from a pretty hard scrabble background, not, you know, that, that he's out there chopping wood himself. He's very gregarious, very, very welcoming. Uh, Brigham later says that I found him all that a prophet could be, or, or something to that effect. He seems to have, after that first meeting, developed just a very fierce devotion to, to Joseph Smith that he never wavers from. So Joseph meets Brigham Young. He's impressed with him. How do we get from here's a new convert to the church to Brigham's assuming some leadership position in the church? What's the process of that? Brigham becomes an apostle after going to Missouri with Joseph Smith on the 1834 Zion's Camp March, this attempt to reclaim the property in Jackson County that had been taken from the Mormons there. And it's a pretty tumultuous trip, which ultimately isn't successful. Partly because of that, there are some members of the camp who question Joseph's leadership. Brigham Young fiercely defends him, which would be characteristic of his time in the church until Joseph's death, well, and really beyond. So Brigham becomes noteworthy for this fierce and stalwart loyalty to Joseph. And I think that's certainly something that attracts and endears him to, to Joseph. And so he is one of the original members of the Twelve. He's not initially president of the Quorum. And really, over the subsequent five years... There are quite a few of the original apostles who fall away, who lose their faith in Joseph Smith, leave the church, even betray the church, and Brigham Young doesn't. He's right at Joseph's side, supporting him through any turmoil and setbacks. So, for instance, when everything falls apart in Kirtland, partly through the disaster of the Kirtland Safety Society, Brigham Young doesn't waver. 
and that steadiness and that loyalty, I think, are what caused him to, to rise in terms of church leadership. Now, initially, the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles were designated as the traveling missionaries of the church, correct? That's correct. And not necessarily a quorum in higher rank than for, say, the High Council of Kirtland. Correct. And it seems to be only after the British mission that Joseph changes his understanding of the Quorum of the Twelve's responsibilities to some extent, that they're now also going to have some authority in Zion and not just elsewhere. Mm -hmm. This is all rather unclear uh, during these years. But that does seem to be a shift uh, after the early 1840s mission to, to Great Britain. And I thought it was interesting, this is something I learned in reading your book, that maybe, maybe a key moment in where Brigham sort of ascends to the highest rung prior to Joseph's death was when Joseph was in, the, uh, in jail in Missouri. And he sends a letter to Joseph and to Heber C. Kimball. And maybe you could describe that. It's, it's saying that because of his incarceration and I think, you know, the incarceration of Hiram Smith and, and Sidney Rigdon as well, that the leadership of the church is going to fall upon the Twelve. And Brigham, it turns out, is the most senior member of the Quorum by age at that point. And I think when, when Joseph wrote the letter, he probably wasn't sure if the most senior member was Brigham or Heber Kimball. And he, and he doesn't, in the letter, specify a name, right? He right. Well, specif- and it, Brigham, as it turns out, is t- exactly two weeks older than Heber C. Kimball. So, ultimately, you could say that Brigham ends up as the leader of the church because he's two weeks older than Heber C. Kimball. <laughs> yes, quite a, almost an irony there. Now, not wanting to get past the early upbringing without bringing this out, not only was Brigham uh, someone who spoke in tongues, who enjoyed singing, he enjoyed dancing as well, correct? He did. I, I, I don't think he was ever 100% comfortable with dancing. He had this strict Methodist upbringing, which said that things like dancing and fiddling were from the devil and were pretty bad sins. Uh, and then, you know, he meets... Joseph Smith, who's much more comfortable with such forms of recreation. And I think Brigham finds that really refreshing, but he does always seem to have a nagging sense that too much too much frivolity but it would be a bad thing. So he, he often, in later years, would go back and forth on dancing. But no, he, he clearly liked it. So that you're, you're right. And what about the theater? I mean, this, we're, we're kind of jumping ahead to Utah, but wasn't he yeah. uh, kind of an aficionado of uh, theatrical events? Well, he was, and this is again something that most Methodists would have thought was utterly beyond the pale. There's there's some evidence that Brigham Young played a role in a theatrical production in Nauvoo, and then he does uh, very much support the construction of the Salt Lake Theater in 1862. Now, a bit like dancing, he he was a little bit double-minded on the issue. He he only wanted certain types of plays to be performed. He he favored light comedies as opposed to darker uh, material. So he was, you know, he, he always was a little bit nervous about 
these forms of recreation and entertainment. I, I, I think he couldn't quite leave his Methodist upbringing behind, but, but he tries to. Yeah. On the other hand, what about coarse language? This seems to be something that, I mean, did you ever run across Brigham swearing? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, don't, I, I haven't found anything worse than, I think, damn and hell until the Mormons leave Nauvoo. But in, in Utah, he and other uh, Mormon leaders were noteworthy for their, their coarse language. And Easterners who would come to Utah and maybe go to the tabernacle would often remark upon this. Now, in general, Easterners would go west and be shocked at all sorts of barbarism and coarseness. So it's it's probably more of a reflection of, of Utah's position in American society. But no, Brigham's language would be would be pretty salty. I uh, was raised in California in a small branch in Northern California. My father never swore that I ever heard, uh, and nor did my mother. And we would go back in the summertime to visit my grandfather's farm in Hyde Park, Utah, in Cache Valley. And I just remember the really coarse language that the kids my age would use there and being shocked and thinking, you know, this is a Mormon community. These guys are all members of the church and they're they're helling and damning <laughs> back and forth. So I do think that this is something that is, is carried on and is, as yeah. you say, sort of a frontier rural trait. Well, and at, you know, I'm sure Brigham's language would, would shock and startle some Latter-day Saint readers today, but I often found it part of just a very raw and sometimes dark sense of humor that that I enjoyed reading about. So, you know, I, I, I don't know. I, I'm not sure all, all readers should, you know, go into sacrament meetings and start talking like Brigham Young today. It might get them in trouble. But <laughs> I think it's it's an aspect of his personality that, that can be enjoyed mm-hmm. and reflective of a, of a very rich and earthy sense of humor. So tell us a little bit about what happens when... Uh, Joseph is murdered. How does Brigham Young assume authority at that point, and where was he actually when Joseph was murdered? He was outside of Boston, Massachusetts at the time, and he was there campaigning for Joseph Smith in Smith's bid for the presidency that year. It was a pretty quixotic bid, and Brigham had, with a number of the other apostles, had held a political convention in Boston. So he's doing that sort of campaigning work, doing more general missionary work as well. And he gets, finally, I think around July 16th or 17th, a credible report of Joseph's death. You know, they're so used to hearing rumors of violence and bloodshed in Nauvoo that I think he'd already heard rumors. But then he gets a credible report, and he's very shaken. Brigham is not a man who displays his emotions in front of other people. I think he gets together with Wilford Woodruff, and Woodruff just weeps openly. Brigham Young's a man who tends to hold his pains and his hurts inside of him, and he he does at that point too. But I think he's very traumatized, and he comes back to Nauvoo within a few weeks and finds a church rather uncertain about its direction forward. Sidney Rigdon 
is offering himself as the church's guardian in Joseph's absence. Brigham then makes a very strong case that the people should consider the twelve apostles as leaders in Joseph's absence. And his main argument seems to be that he and the apostles possess the sacerdotal authority to lead the people through the sacred ordinances, that Joseph has bestowed that authority upon them, and more so than any other individual or group, they're in a position to do that. So he very much calls on the people to stay in Nauvoo, finish the temple, and receive their promised blessings. And at least in Nauvoo, uh, the large majority of Mormons accept that argument. So he assumes the de facto leadership position, as since he is the president of the Quorum of the Twelve. What's his game plan at that point? What's he, what's he trying to accomplish? He's first and foremost trying to finish the temple. There are some Latter-day Saints in the wake of Joseph's murder who are eager to go elsewhere. You know, there's still threat of renewed violence from mobs in the area. Brigham, so Brigham's first task is actually to convince people to stay and, and finish the task at hand. And so that, that's what he's really focused on for the next year. So efforts go into completing this structure, uh, which are obviously incredible. Once it's completed and dedicated and ready for business, what's Brigham Young's role in, in that? Well, I describe him as, as the people's you know, chief priest that winter. He's very much a priestly leader. You know, he leads, and he doesn't do this in every instance, but he leads thousands of Latter-day Saints uh, through the endowment ceremony. He's at the temple, actively involved in the ordinances uh, for very long hours each day, often from maybe 8 or 9 in the morning until late at night, so that it's a, it's a flurry of, of ritual activity. So the endowment ceremony, marital ceilings, the ceremony of ordinance of adoption. So it's just this very active time of ritual activity. I think that does a lot to cement his, his leadership of the church. But, you know, he has, he's staked his leadership, in a sense, on completing the temple, and he's able to do so, just barely. But the, the fact that he's... He's able to make good on that, and then is clearly the man who's presiding over all of these activities. I think that helps cement cement his leadership and authority. And, and probably just the fact that he is meeting personally and rubbing shoulders with so many of the saints in the area. I, I have, have several ancestors who lived in Nauvoo, and they were not in the hierarchy by any means, probably somewhat obscure, but many of them went through the temple in those last days. Uh, mm-hmm. As I recall, once Brigham Young understood that they were going to leave, he basically said, we've got to close the temple at some point because we've got to be on our way. Right. And, and then even more people, my, I guess my procrastinating ancestors, came down and uh, said, well, we need to get through here. And, and there were essentially morning-to-night type uh, things going on, right? There, there were. And, and yes, one, there was one time in early February where Brigham Young thinks things need to be finished and they need to be making their final preparations. And a huge crowd of people show up at the temple. And he basically is 
strong-armed into resuming activity uh, again. And during these months, he he would typically sleep in the temple. Mm-hmm. So he's there around the clock. He's also doing that because he's he sees it as a sanctuary from arrest mm-hmm. or possible assassination. So he's he's pretty much there all the time. So just to put a, a time frame on it, we're talking now about the winter of 1845-46. Mm-hmm. Spring of 46, or actually still in the winter of 46, is when the saints begin their exodus. Mm-hmm. Brigham Young uh, goes with them, and they initially, I guess, they were hoping to go all the way to Utah, but that proved not to be possible. He wanted a small vanguard pioneer camp to get all the way over the mountains that year. And he's chomping at the bit to to be on his way and he's very frustrated with the slow progress across Iowa. They're all, you know, they're all stuck in the mud with terrible weather. And it takes him a long it takes him several months to just come to grips with the fact that they're going to have to winter well short of the of the mountains. That's what he does. They winter on the Missouri River mm-hmm. in winter quarters. He organizes them there, and then the next year, 1847, is when he leads this vanguard unit to the Salt Lake Valley. Did he know where he was going at the time, or is this like, sometimes we see the stories that he's sort of riding along in his wagon, he looks up and he says, oh, this looks like a good place, Uh, we'll stop here. Well, what's the story (laughs) on that? I I think by the time, you know, by the time the Pioneer Camp is headed west... Brigham is certain he's either going to end up near the Great Salt Lake or near what becomes known as Utah Lake. It's going to be one of those two. My sense is that on the trail, he gets some reports that there are more Indians down by Utah Lake. And so he's he's already certainly planning to go to the uh, Salt Lake Valley before he shows up. But he does actually say this is the place. Mm-hmm. I don't think, I, I don't know that he says it before he actually gets into the valley. Mm-hmm. But after he gets into the valley, he is with a group of people and it's uncertain whether they should move somewhere else within the valley. And he does say this is the place. Okay. <laughs> this is the place where Salt Lake City now stands. Even though he's, so he makes this journey all the way across the plains from the Missouri River, but he doesn't stay there, does he? I mean, the summer of 1847, what what does he do there? He goes back at the end of the summer. Some of the saints remain. Others actually show up, trailing behind, or members of the Mormon battalion uh, coming from California east. But Brigham goes back to organize the larger migration of Latter-day Saints in 1848. So he goes back to winter quarters. It's a it's a busy fall. He decides to reconstitute a first presidency, has to strong arm many of the other apostles into supporting uh, that proposal. Now, that's interesting because I think sometimes we Mormons have the impression that Brigham Young became president of the church as soon as Joseph Smith died, but now we're talking about, what, three years after Joseph's death, and he seeks to organize a first presidency with him as the president. Now, 
you told an interesting story in Miller Echoes about that, and I think I found it endearing, actually, or interesting as to an insight into Brigham's personality. Maybe you could tell that for us. Do you want it with a colorful language or yeah, not? Let's let's say that if you quote Brigham Young on this podcast, we have no problems. Okay. Well, yeah, he, he wants to streamline streamline leadership at this point. That's that's his rationale for reconstituting a first presidency. He is the de facto president of the church. He sometimes signs his letters that way already. So, in a sense, this is a technicality, but. The creation of a first presidency will create less need to have the rest of the apostles on the scene. It will make it easier for efficient decision-making, you might say. And almost to a man, the apostles oppose this idea. Now, Heber Kimball and Willard Richards don't seem to oppose it. They become Young's counselors, but everybody else is, is opposed He's able to overcome most opposition pretty readily, but Orson Pratt just digs in his heels, and they go back and forth on the issue in several meetings, and it's pretty heated. And uh, Pratt at one point tells Brigham that he thinks that church leadership should function more like the, the House of Representatives and that Young should behave like a Speaker of the House rather than as a president. Young's response was shit on Congress. And that's <laughs> you know, it's that's a terrible idea. Which I, I I thought was a great response. And he goes on and is very clear that, you know, I am the head, you are the belly. He tells the apostles, look, if you think you can do a better job of leading the church, you're welcome to try. But otherwise, if I'm the man, get in the harness or get out of the way. And they do. He is very animated at these meetings. You know, I think he's he's singing and shouting, full of the Holy Spirit. And his willpower and spirit simply overwhelm uh, the other apostles' opposition. And and so the first presidency is reconstituted. And it's it's amusing to me after one of these very heated discussions, after Orson Pratt finally gives way. The apostles gather together, I think on the other on the eastern banks of the Missouri River. They drink strawberry wine together. Maybe they have a time of singing and prayer. So there's some complex relationships here. They, they, re- they really hash this out, but then they have kind of a tender celebration afterwards. And that seems to be uh, a bit of a pattern. I mean, that had been this case with Joseph Smith on some occasions as well, chastising people pretty bluntly at times, and then later extending the hand of fellowship. But in Brigham Young's case, clashes with other apostles, I mean, the clashes and the reconciliations, I guess, continued for quite a few years, if not for most of his life, right? They did, and I think he actually was, he would technically forgive people like Orson Pratt, when they clashed with him, but he didn't forget, and he would nurse grievances against other individuals, and certainly did not hesitate to denounce them in public. That's what they really didn't like. They actually bring that up during the discussions about the first presidency. You know, we're willing to be 
corrected by you, but we'd really rather you do it privately. Mm-hmm. But he doesn't hesitate to just stand up in a meeting mm-hmm. and denounce other church leaders. And that that makes things rather uncomfortable for them. There was one time that Orson Hyde began a meeting before Young's arrival. I suppose he just thought they should start. Well, Young took that as an affront to his authority, and he just gives Hyde a severe tongue lashing. Hmm. And Hyde's not too pleased about it, but he he confesses his error and you know repents. So he he uh, clashes with Orson Pratt, and, and we're actually going to talk a little bit more about some of their disagreements on doctrinal issues a little later in the podcast. He clashes with Orson Hyde. He had clashes with Parley Pratt, right? He did. And uh, and John Taylor, what was his relationship with John Taylor? I think he just didn't like John Taylor. <laughs> uh, most, most fundamentally, he thinks that Taylor is snobbish, egotistical. He complains that Taylor has the big head, expects the other apostles to black his boots. <laughs> so he, he just doesn't like Taylor. He He thinks Taylor has no business sense whatsoever so that you know the one thing about Taylor though is Taylor doesn't challenge or criticize Young publicly mm-hmm. so in a way I think he's he's more assured of Taylor's loyalty than he is somebody like uh, Orson Pratt mm-hmm. and then you, you were mentioning an interesting incident uh, with one of the early apostles uh, Thomas Marsh who left the church and uh then sort of had a belated uh, end of the life conversion back into it. Tell us about that. Well, Marsh is the initial president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, and he then betrays the church at the height of the 1838 Missouri conflict. And so there's obvious bitterness on Brigham Young's part. Marsh, sometime in the mid-1850s, decides that he wants to come back. In in this case, he wants to come to Utah. So he writes Brigham Young. Young invites him out to Utah. Marsh, by this point, is very diminished. He's physically infirm. He seems to perhaps be somewhat mentally infirm as well. Well, he shows up in early September of 1857, and Brigham Young has told him to come, but he doesn't exactly give him a warm welcome. What he does is he holds up Marsh as an example of the consequences of apostasy. He says to everybody, well, you better not apostatize or you'll end up like this guy. Look how, <laughs> look how withered he is. He wouldn't even be able to get one wife. <laughs> and yeah, I, 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 can, I can understand uh, Young's bitterness, but you know, it, it seems unkind. But after Marsh endures that initial experience... Young does treat him more tenderly. He's entirely impoverished with no apparent source of income, and he'll sometimes write to Brigham Young and ask for some charity, and Young obliges. There's at least one time in which Marsh is admitted to Brigham Young's office, and they sing some hymns together, like they may have sung together back in the 1830s. And Brigham is a pretty busy man, This is in the early 1860s. So he certainly wouldn't have felt compelled to give an audience to to Thomas Marsh by any stretch. And I thought that was interesting that that he chose to do so. Mm -hmm. 
Now, you've alluded to this before, but Brigham wasn't someone who particularly enjoyed having other people criticize him. Would you agree with that? Uh, absolutely. I, I think he he concluded that Joseph Smith had not kept a tight enough rein on things during his years as the church's leader. And if you think about the early history of the church, it's it's a series of... Obviously, there are external threats, but it's a series of almost internal collapses. So in Kirtland, there's a complete collapse because of Joseph Smith's loss of authority. Then in Missouri, you have a whole series of betrayals. And then in Nauvoo, you have factionalism and dissent, which quite directly contribute to Joseph's demise. And Brigham Young, he's fiercely loyal to Joseph Smith, but he surveys this and simply concludes that Joseph didn't do enough to keep a handle on dissent. And so he resolves that he is not going to allow challenges to his authority. And I think that's why he reacts so sharply to, to criticism or any any whiff of dissent. He's, he's very heavy-handed about it. He's quite clear that he doesn't want dissent to lead to his death. And he says that on, he's quite open about this. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't want a repetition of what happened to Joseph Smith. Does this ever lead to violence? We hear, I mean, let's face it, the frontier was a violent place. And I've read authors who say that compared to other frontier areas, Utah was probably less violence prone than most. And yet, we do hear stories of violence, and we hear stories of Brigham Young being involved in violence. So what's, what's your take on that? I think there were instances in which Brigham Young authorized acts of violence, and there are more instances in which he condones extra-legal violence after it's taken place. Now, he says in the early 1860s, he gives a speech in Springville, where there were a few murders in the spring of 1857, and he talks about the fact that, you know, people are grumbling because of these murders. And he says, you'll never be able to pin anything onto me. But he also says, you know, a number of men have been killed, and I think more should have been. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a few instances in which I think there's strong evidence for him having orchestrated or approved, approved would be a better term, an act of violence. A couple of those are during the Utah War. Uh, one could see them almost as, as special cases. There's also a murder in 1854 of a man named uh, Jesse Hartland. Actually, I don't talk about it in the book. There are only so many that I had the time and resources to investigate, but somebody published a, a fairly persuasive article about the case last year, and it, it seems pretty likely that that Brigham Young ordered that man's death. He had opposed the uh, political control of the territory by Brigham Young and the church. And he wrote a letter to Jefferson Davis, who was Secretary of War at the time. Church leaders intercept the the letter. This man, Hartley, actually then joins the church and at one point is, is set to serve a mission, and then Brigham Young denounces him publicly he decides that he should leave the territory, and he's murdered on his way out of the territory. Uh, and it, it seems like that was done with, with Young's approval. You know, there, there are a number of, of cases that are ambiguous. 
I think, in a, in a nutshell, Ber- Brigham Young believed that his highest calling was to protect the church. And I think there are times in which he employed means that today we find highly questionable. Mm-hmm. Probably the most famous act of violence is the Mountain Meadows Massacre, certainly the largest in scale. And just to set the stage for that, this this happens in, uh, is it 1857? Correct. And that's at the same time that the Utah War, uh, so-called, is taking place, where the United States Army is marching on Utah. So there's a bit of a hysteria going on. But what about, and, I, and we don't have time, nor do we want in this podcast, to talk about the, all the details of the Mountain Meadows Massacre, but what's your sense as to Brigham's involvement in that? Sure. If any. If you'll give me leave to do so, Morris, let me back up and say one other thing in relation to violence in Utah, and then, and then sure. let's talk about Mountain Meadows. I think one thing that, that ought to be said is that in addition to these several cases of violence involving church members or others in Utah. It's also, I think it's important to say that in his Indian policies, Brigham Young is also responsible for the deaths of, of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not as if Indian deaths don't count mm-hmm. uh, when it comes to violence in human life. And so, for instance, when Brigham Young sends settlers in 1849 to Utah Valley, and they inevitably clash with the Indians there. And after some hesitation, he then authorizes what's really a campaign of extermination against hostile Indians. So I think it's worth mentioning that as well. There are probably more lives lost there mm-hmm. than if you put all of the other extra-legal violence cases together. So I think that's important. Uh, in terms of, of Mountain Meadows, I don't think there's evidence that is convincing that Brigham Young ordered the massacre. I read his letter to uh, Isaac Haight uh, in the midst of the standoff as exculpatory, where he says, don't, don't meddle with the emigrants, let them go. I, at the same time, I don't think Young is blameless. You know, even in the context of that letter, the implication is that if the Indians want to kill these settlers, that's fine. You don't have to stand in their way. And after Young gets word of the Army's approach, he starts mobilizing Utah's militia, the Nauvoo Legion, to prepare to fight the Army. He certainly kind of whips up a martial spirit across the territory, a military spirit across the territory. He talks quite openly about how he's going to close the Overland Trail And the consequence of that is that immigrants are going to die. He's not going to restrain the Indians any longer. He encourages Indians to attack wagon trains and steal cattle. All of those are very reckless policies, in my opinion. I mean, I think Young saw the approaching army as a potential mob. I also think a lot of his political behavior over the previous half-decade prompted uh, Buchanan's decision to send the army. Uh, so then, in, the, in, in this context, you have, have Mountain Meadows take place, and it certainly wouldn't have taken place at any other time. I can certainly see how people in southern Utah 
could have thought that if they attacked this wagon train, stole these cattle, and made it look like an Indian massacre, Brigham Young wouldn't have a problem with it. My sense is that sometimes Brigham's rhetoric sort of gets out in front of what his, his actions would have been. He'll, he'll talk a, a violent, we're going to do this, we're going to do that kind of a rhetoric, and yet if one were to ask him specifically, as in the case of Mountain Meadows, when, when the, the note finally reaches him, what shall we do? And he sends back, let them go. Unfortunately, it, it arrives too late to be of any use, but uh, sometimes the actions don't quite match up to the rhetoric. Is that your sense at all? Or? I think so. You know, I think sometimes it's... it's um, sometimes people say, well, that was just rhetoric. Mm-hmm. Well, incendiary rhetoric is not just rhetoric because it can have consequences. Especially if it's the leader of the, of the church. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, he is specifically meeting with Indians and telling them that they can attack wagon trains. Now, I don't think that those particular meetings actually had anything to do with Mountain Meadows. But, you know, there you have the governor of a U.S. territory, leader of the church, telling Indians to prey on wagon trains. Well, if Indians are going to attack wagon trains, people are probably going to be killed in the process. He's not actually telling them, kill immigrants, but attacks on wagon trains probably wouldn't be bloodless. Mm-hmm. So I think I, I think these policies are are pretty reckless and inflammatory. Yeah, well, of course, war is seldom bloodless, and and that's the way that Brigham viewed this was as a war. In fact, one place where his rhetoric never lived up to what he actually did, I guess, is what he threatened to do if the army did enter the Salt Lake Valley, which was to evacuate the valley and burn Salt Lake City. Right. That very much seems to have been his plan. He he talks about that in August of 1857. So very early on in the standoff that he will he will evacuate and and burn the city. He doesn't want, you know, he doesn't want the, you know, in in the past the saints are always kicked out and they lose their property. So he's going to leave a wasteland mm-hmm. behind, uh, basically. And I think he also thinks that this will make the U.S. government look really bad. He still talks about this very seriously the following spring and doesn't abandon it until, I think, May of 1858. I think he does, you know, he does decide that they, they think about possible possibly relocating the church once again but I, I don't think Brigham Young is ever overly serious about that I think he's been determined not to be driven again mm-hmm. you're driven out of Kirtland and Missouri and, and Illinois he doesn't want to be driven again uh, so he'd ultimately rather rather compromise and back down than relocate and yet he, he does uh, take he definitely takes steps to make it appear that this is I suppose any good leader has alternative plans, but one of my ancestors was sent out to scout out with a, with a large party of men to scout out possible places in eastern Nevada, yes. in the mountains, where people could go and essentially hide out. Exactly. Well, he he's, has that as a very live possibility that he may need to flee and save his life by, by hiding, hiding out there. I think they come back, and the, the report's not overly 
positive, right? Is that, <laughs> well, is that yeah, right? I've kind of gone through Eastern Nevada, and, and my report isn't overly positive either. Uh, <laughs> but then, the, you know, the saints have made the desert bloom before, so I guess anything's possible. I'd like to just maybe riff on a few subjects since we have a definite time limit to this podcast, and I want to make sure we cover them. Talk about Brigham Young's attitude toward African Americans, because that's an issue that often comes up. Sure. Well, I do think the priesthood ban originates with Brigham, not with Joseph. There are a number of black men ordained into the priesthood during Joseph's lifetime, and there's no sense that he's opposed to that. Brigham Young, as late as early 1847, references an African-American elder in Lowell, Massachusetts, without any sense that that's problematic. What, what seems to turn his thinking in another direction is an interracial marriage between a white female church member. And I, I, I'm, I'm, un, I'm uncertain if the man is a church member himself or only the son of a church member. But in any event, he's very horrified at their interracial union and the fact that they have a child together. Uh, basically says they, they deserve to die. And from that point forward, his opinions on race are are much harsher, or really his opinions on blackness. I think it's pretty clear that he articulates what becomes known as the priesthood ban by 1849 or so. Of course, his general attitude toward African Americans uh, as being an inferior race, or at least a cursed race, Mm -hmm. And, and his opposition to interracial marriage were not all that uncommon in that era, correct? No, I don't, I don't see his, uh, his repugnant opinions on race as all that unusual for mid-19th century America. It's many, many Americans, many, many white Americans were in particular horrified at the thought of intermarriage. I mean, Abraham Lincoln, when he debates Stephen Douglas in 1858. He makes a big point of his opposition to intermarriage as something particularly horrifying. I mean, Brigham Young definitely states these views very vehemently and at times with prophetic authority. I think that fact that he does so made it difficult for subsequent church leaders to move away from them. Right, even after the majority of the nation gives up these ideas, the Mormons kind of cling to them uh, essentially as a result of Brigham's opinions on the subject, right? Well, and, and, you know, at some point many church leaders conclude and I think this is in the late 1800s or early 1900s and I'm not really an expert on the later developments, but I think they conclude this this did originate with Joseph. I think they're probably wrong about that, Mm -hmm. but to them, that, that would make would make sense. Um, you know, I, I relied pretty heavily on uh, Lester Bush's article in Dialogue. A very uh, fine publication, by the way. It is a very <laughs> fine publication. There are a lot of articles about Mormon history and Dialogue that were, were very helpful to me. And that's one of them. And what is it now? Almost 40 years old. But that, that's held up uh, very well. And it's, it's quite helpful. Mm-hmm. Yes, I remember reading that myself, and it was it had a 
profound effect on my thinking uh, back when it was published, which I guess dates me. Yeah, I was born that year. (laughs) (laughs) The other thing that a lot of people may or may not realize is that when Brigham Young was governor of the territory of Utah, it was a slave-holding territory, is that right? Uh, That's correct, and he supported the legalization of both Indian and African slavery in, in early 1852. I, I think mostly because he wanted to make Southern Latter-day Saints who were coming to Utah feel, feel comfortable, so to speak. There were never more than several dozen or maybe 60 at most, I think, uh, slaves in the Utah Territory. There were not large numbers but at one, there's one point at which he's quite emphatic that, you know, if I believe in the Bible, I must believe in slavery. Mm-hmm. And, and he supports this. He does not want Utah to enter the Union as a slave state, however. I don't think he wants Utah to become a slave society. Mm-hmm. I don't think he wants there to be large numbers of black people in Utah, slave or free. Mm-hmm. So he, he doesn't, he, he does expect Utah to become a free state if it gains admittance to the Union. Okay. A couple of other things, just quickly. Uh, blood atonement. Yeah, that's certainly one of the more chilling messages that Brigham Young preached. His belief, which is articulated by him and other church leaders, certainly by the late 1840s, is that there are certain sins that are so grievous that the blood of Christ will not atone for them. They can only be atoned with the individual's own blood. And that, therefore, if we really love our neighbors as ourselves, uh, we should kill those individuals, and they should ask to be killed. It's very chilling. It's, it's, it's preached very forthrightly uh, during the Mormon Reformation in 1856 and 1857. It had also been preached publicly on, on some occasions uh, earlier in the 1850s. I, I think mostly Brigham Young preached that message to terrify people and to prod them toward repentance. First of all, I I think there's nothing charitable about the the message, and I don't think he was preaching it out of concern for these people's souls. But yeah, pretty chilling, pretty chilling preaching. But no particular evidence that Brigham Young was personally involved in in blood atonement of any sort, the actual carrying it out. No, there isn't. Um, You know, I mentioned earlier that I do think he's involved in some murders, but none of those have a connection to blood atonement. Yeah, I think it's important to distinguish. I mean, maybe it's not, certainly not in the eyes of the law, but there is a difference between not not every murder is going to be blood atonement. No, definitely not. There's, There's a murder, I think, in 1858, that one one report suggests could have been blood atonement, but I'm not I'm not fully convinced about it, and I don't know that I don't, I don't particularly think Brigham Young was involved in it in any event. So I, you know I think it's such shocking preaching, but I don't I don't think I don't actually think it had those sorts of practical mm-hmm. consequences. So for instance, if a political opponent of the church is killed, it's not being done out of the theory of blood atonement, right? You know, a lot of church members today may not have even heard of blood atonement, and yet that doctrine had a lasting effect in the state of Utah 
because only recently, I think, did Utah cease being a state where you could opt to be shot by a firing squad as opposed to some other form of execution if you were condemned to die. Is that right? And that's correct. That just changed a couple of years ago. Yeah. Right? I remember I was out in Utah when the last person to be executed by, by firing squad was, was killed. Yeah. Okay, another subject, Adam God. What's that all about? Uh, that's Brigham Young's identification of Adam as humanity's God. I think for him, it was a logical outgrowth of the theological ideas of, of Joseph Smith. I think he, he concluded, or Young concluded, that Adam came to this world as an exalted, resurrected, divinized being, and came to earth, became fleshly, that was his term again, along with his wife, or at least one of his wives, and then peopled this world. And because of that, Adam, according to Young, was the only God with which we have to deal. I don't think Young necessarily thought that Adam was the only God in the universe, but this was the God of this world. And the goal of human existence was to become an Adam, perhaps an Adam on another world. Mm-hmm. Now, interestingly, it doesn't appear that this was it was a, a belief that kind of got picked up by the church, even though the the church leader was a, was expounding it. A number of his apostles disagreed, correct? Well, Orson Pratt disagrees okay. and talks publicly about his disagreement and gets some severe chastisement for it. But yeah, I would say it got a very lukewarm reaction. There were some some people who were very thrilled by this teaching. I think Young's wife, Zina Huntington, was, was among them. So some people thought this was quite thrilling. Many just found it confusing. Mm. You know, does that mean we have to pray to Adam? How does that square with the account in, in Genesis of Adam being formed from the dust of the earth? Mm-hmm. It, it, ultimately, it doesn't seem to have caught on. And, and Young recognized this, and he kind of set the doctrine aside for a time. Then he teaches it again in the 1870s. But it's something that that does fade fairly quickly after his death. Mm-hmm. No discussion of Brigham Young would be complete, I think, without talking about polygamy. How many wives, by your count, did Brigham Young marry? A mere 55. Okay. <laughs> uh, one thing I don't think a lot of people realize... Brigham Young was divorced on occasion, right? The better way to say it would be that he granted divorces to a number of women. Okay. Yeah, I think especially in Nauvoo at the temple, you know, there are several dozen ceilings. This happens very quickly. There's a sense, I think at that time, that if if we want these blessings, we have to grab them now. And I don't think anybody at that point is at all clear about how this is going to work out practically. And so there are quite a few women who are not pleased to be, or find that they're, they're not content being one of his many wives. You know, maybe maybe they'd rather marry somebody else. In those in those instances, he seemed to have been quite willing to, to grant divorces. If, if you were to compare the polygamy that Brigham Young practiced with the polygamy that Joseph Smith practiced, how... How would they differ? Well, after they differ especially after the saints leave Nauvoo. First and foremost, it's no longer something that has to be in secret. 
something that can be openly lived. Brigham Young assembles a household, which Joseph never does. So that that's the most significant difference is that you know Joseph Smith institutes plural marriage, doesn't leave Brigham Young any sort of manual on how to go about it. So it's once they're on the trail west, he decides to assemble a household, and that that's a that's a huge change. It's it's clear now that this is not going to be something that's just for eternity. And I don't think it was just, I don't think Joseph thought of it that way either. But one could think about it that way in Nauvoo. Mm-hmm. You know, something without a lot of earthly ramifications, even even if a marriage was consummated. But for for Brigham Young, it's, it's a new order of things. Mm-hmm. Did Brigham Young ever reject any women who wanted to marry him? He did. There were, there were women who would write to him and, and, and say that, you know, God was prompting them to become his wives and, and he would he would he would reject that. I think he didn't want to support hundreds of wives. And, you know, with his um, with his wealth and status, he was he was a desirable mm-hmm. husband. It's actually mm-hmm. funny, in at least one of those instances, the he subsequently marries a woman who at one point he says no. You know, I, I don't have that revelation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But 14 years later or so, he actually marries her. So I guess she must have been very persistent. <laughs> did you get any sense of what Brigham Young's attitude was towards men that did not take care of their wives, did not support them? He was very blunt. He was a tough marital counselor. Uh, you know, he he would hear about all sorts of marital problems, sometimes a wife or a man would come to him and you know, he would he would threaten men that were either abusing or neglecting their wives and basically said you you'd better shape up or bad things might happen to you and you know if a, if a situation was abusive and beyond repair he would typically grant a divorce mm-hmm. to the woman and make the man pay $10 to facilitate it <laughs> So in some senses, I mean, you could almost say that his approach to women was somewhat more enlightened than than was typical in that era. I mean, divorces, at least in in strong religious societies, have generally been frowned upon, and yet divorces seem to be reasonably readily available in in the case of uh, polygamous marriages. Correct. Yes, and I, I, you know, I'm mostly drawing on the work of people like Kathy Danes mm-hmm. um, on the subject, and I, I, there are several other authors who've, who've done good work on Utah marriage and divorce. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't exactly, I, I wouldn't frame Brigham Young as some sort of proto-feminist or anything like that. <laughs> but he was, he was fairly liberal on the matter of granting uh, divorces, and I think a lot of religious leaders of the 19th century would not have been. They wouldn't have been sympathetic to a woman who wanted out of an abusive marriage. Mm-hmm. There was one incident you mentioned in your book that I found interesting, even though I know it's an outlier, and so it's not necessarily, it is not typical of, of his advice, but there was a woman whose husband was impotent and who mm-hmm. desperately wanted to have progeny, and, and what was his advice to her, and, and how did that all play out? 
his advice to them was that she should temporarily leave her husband, marry someone else, have more children, and go back to her first husband. It seems to have been something that he presents as a creative solution to a problem, that impotency in general would be grounds for the dissolution of a marriage. And curiously, the husband is very much on board with this. He actually wants to be spiritually adopted to Brigham and talks about it afterwards. So he's not, doesn't appear to be offended mm-hmm. by this idea. And there's been a few other authors who have referenced this. I was able to see some of the original letters from both the wife and the husband to Brigham Young. So I think it's quite, quite credible. Mm-hmm. And so... She's married to... This is in Manti. So she's married to another man in Manti. The woman's name is Mary Richardson. Her husband is is Edmund. And she marries Frederick Walter Cox. And I forget if it's two or... She has two or three children. I think two by him. Then she returns to Edmund. And they're raised really as if they're Edmunds. Mm-hmm. Interesting. It was it was quite quite fascinating. Yeah. Did Brigham Young have favorites among his wives? Definitely. He very much uh, seems to have had Emmeline Free as a favorite, uh, especially maybe in the, in, the, in the 1850s. Then I think he very much falls in love with Amelia Folsom and marries her. he marries her in 1863, and she remains his preferred female companion for the rest of his life. When he goes to St. George for the winter, late in life, he takes Amelia. Mm-hmm. There was quite an age gap there with he and Amelia, right? Yeah, quite an age gap. I think he is 61 at the age of the marriage, and she's 24, mm-hmm. something like that. So a big gap. What attracted him to her? Was was he attracted? Was this? A- I think, you know, I think he was very attractive. I mean, she's described as... Very good looking, but I mean, who, who's to say? I don't know, but he, he does seem to have been very drawn to her. She was the daughter of, a, of, a, of an architect. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the man who designed the Salt Lake Theater. Mm-hmm. But he seems very taken with her. And Brigham's daughter, Susa Gates Young, or Susa Young Gates, des- describes it as a love match. Mm-hmm. And... I don't see any particular reason to doubt that. Mm-hmm. I mean, Brigham Young was was very human, mm-hmm. and he married women for all sorts of different reasons. Yeah. But I, I think there was a definite attraction in that case. Most of his marriages, however, occurred really in the first what decade or so after polygamy was mm-hmm. introduced. Mm-hmm. So uh, it was a little more unusual for him to be marrying people later in life. It was, it, yeah, the, the rate slowed down considerably there. Um, very irregular marriages in the late 50s onward. That becomes becomes rare. When he, when he marries Amelia Folsom, I don't think he had married anybody for six or seven years, and everybody was shocked. Mm-hmm. Congress had just passed the moral... The Anti-Bigamy Act. Mm-hmm. So, in a, in a sense, you know, he's kind of thumbing his nose at the U.S. government by marrying <laughs> Amelia as well, yeah. which the American officials in Utah at the time 
uh, took kindly to. One of them writes a letter to Abraham Lincoln, something to the effect that Brigham is adding to his harem every week. <laughs> that was <laughs> totally false. There's just that one marriage to Amelia at this time. Yeah. Well, John, uh, we're reaching the end of our time, and this has been really interesting to me. I, I'd like you kind of in closing, well, actually two, two things. First of all, whether there's anything that you think we haven't covered regarding Brigham's personality, because I think that's what people are interested in yeah. that you'd like to talk about. And then I think a nice closing would be the story that you actually used to begin your biography about the, the incident in St. George near the end of Brigham's life. Uh, but, but before that, is there anything else that you can think of that we haven't covered that relates to Brigham's personality? Um, maybe the only other thing I would add now is this fierce independent streak. He's a man who did not like to be pressed and pressured. The only time in his life in which he sets that aside is through his fealty to Joseph Smith. But otherwise, he doesn't like to be pressured into anything. He doesn't want to be pressured to sign a temperance pledge as a young man. He doesn't want to be pressured to drink, on the other hand. Certainly doesn't want the U.S. government telling him what to do. Doesn't want other church leaders telling him what to do. He, on a couple of occasions, uses the adjective untrammeled. He wants to be untrammeled. I think that's core part of, of his personality. There's lots more, but I have to put in a little pitch for my book. Yeah, uh, there's he's such a complex and fascinating man um, that I, I do think. It's both an entertaining and instructive instructive life. Yeah. And then what about that incident toward the latter part of his life? Because I think that's instructive as to his personality as well. Well, he goes to St. George in, I think he arrives in December of 1876. And then the first dedication of the St. George Temple takes place the next month in January of 1877. This is about seven months before Brigham Young dies. He's very infirm at this point. He's, he can't walk because of terrible rheumatism. So he's actually wheeled into the temple on a sedan chair on rollers. And there are a long series of prayers. And then at the end, Brigham Young stands up and talks. He's, he was not a man who was going to let the occasion go by without speaking and reflecting on the occasion. And he starts off on what I would say is a very elevated tone, you know, that this is the first time, he says, since the days of Adam, that people are going to have all the ordinances available to save themselves and their and their ancestors, to secure their exaltation and that of their ancestors. And he talks about how we cannot be saved without our fathers, our fathers cannot be saved without us. I think things that would probably also very much resonate with contemporary LDS readers. And then his tone just shifts. He, you know, and this should just be a moment of satisfaction and fulfillment, but he, he starts saying that he, he's worried that people are more interested in getting a little bit of wealth than in the eternal welfare of their ancestors, that you know, they give all that up for a single dollar. Uh, they would build a railroad to the bottomless pit. And his tone gets angrier and angrier. 
he says how the, the people are all ready to give their wealth to, to the Gentiles and this builds to a crescendo and he says you know you might be satisfied with what we've done here but I am not half satisfied uh, many of you are damn fools and you're going to go to hell unless you repent and then he takes his cane and he whacks the pulpit and evidently whacks it hard enough that he buries uh, three knots from his cane into the pulpit. And the noise reverberates around the hall. There are reports that a century later, visitors to the temple could still see the, the marks that he'd left. So there's Brigham Young, you know, pugnacious, bit profane, but a man who is determined to build up the kingdom of God and defend it until his final breath. That is instructive, and and I appreciate your ending on that note, John. It's been a a great podcast. Uh, We appreciate your being here. I would say to any of our listeners that get the book and read it, you'll learn a lot about Brigham's life. Uh, Obviously, we've only scratched the surface of the things that you'll learn from the book. I think it's essential reading in the same sense that Rustone Rolling was essential reading about our first prophet. And with that, we'll close. Thank you, John. Thank you, Morris. You've been listening to the Dialogue Journal podcast series. We'd like to thank our guests today. For more Dialogue podcasts or to comment on this one, please visit DialogueJournal.com. Thank you.